You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. In this episode, we sit down with mountain hardware athlete and Olympian Kyra Condi. Kyra has so much psych and energy, and we had a wide-ranging conversation covering her past, present, and future climbing exploits. We start off with her experience winning the Waco Rock Rodeo in 2017, her advice for competitors this year, and how her spinal fusion pushes her to have a creative mind and find her own beta. She also gave some excellent insight into the way comp climbers think, the key training focuses every climber should have, and how more climbers should get on routes and problems that are way too hard for them. Kyra is really open about dealing with fear of falling and fear of the unknown, and we unpack that and more, diving into relatable topics for most climbers. Finally, we cover her Olympic hopes for Paris 2024. Whether it's strategies for competing in Waco, training tips, or mantras for good mental game, Kyra's wisdom is worth the listen. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion board designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, Outdoor Research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. If you're looking for the ultimate adventure guide and navigation app, our sponsor, Onyx Backcountry, has your back. Onyx has paired climbing area locations, route beta, photos, and approach trails from Mountain Project with premium GPS navigation and mapping tools like high-resolution 3D maps, private land data, recent satellite imagery, and offline maps so you can easily navigate to the boulder or crag. And for the off-season or those multi-activity days, check out over 1,500 in-depth guidebook ski tours and over 650,000 miles of hiking and mountain biking trails, route building tools, personal waypoints, and on-the-ground tracking. Use promo code AAC30 for 30% off Onyx Backcountry, and don't wait to find your next adventure. (laughs) 
Welcome, Kyra, to the podcast. We are super excited to have you on today because you're a previous winner of the AAC's Waco Rock Rodeo, which is awesome. And that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So we're hopefully going to ask you all the questions about strategy and how someone could be a winner in the future. You're an Olympian. You're still crushing it with competitions these days. And you're seeking to qualify for the next Olympics, which is super awesome. We want to delve into that. And you're also just like incredibly relatable and open on the internet when you have your podcast with Allison Vest and on social media, you're just like kind of unearthing these undercurrents of conversations in the climbing community in a very public way, which I think is super valuable. And I think a lot of people feel very connected to you because of that. So we're going to kind of go into some of those conversations as well. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm I'm excited. I think a lot of those conversations are things that I I wished I had growing up. And so I'm like, I'm excited to be a part of that and trying to kind of push that change, you know? Absolutely. So before we go all climbing all the time, I want a fun random question. First of all, what fictional character do you have a crush on right now? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just read uh, Project Hail Mary. Uh, I listened to it. I'm more of an audiobook person, but there's only two characters really in that whole book. And one is like an alien spider and the other one is <laughs> like, uh, a kind of like flawed character. But the the alien spider is like really adorable in the book. I wouldn't say it's a crush, but he's the one who's currently on my mind. It's like anytime he said anything, I was just like, oh my goodness, like what a cutie. <laughs> oh, I, oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> Maybe not my best answer, but it's the one that came to mind. It's definitely distinct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into Waco because it's definitely on the AAC's mind as it's like, you know, in a couple weeks, we're super excited to bring it back after a long time where it hasn't been hosted because of COVID and like some stuff like that. So you competed in 2017, right? Was that the only time that you competed? Yeah. And that's actually only the second time I ever went to Waco. And the other time I was there for like a week ish and I was about 16. So I went in pretty blind, not, not the best strategy. Cause you said we were going to talk some strategy. So yeah, I, I went in probably with maybe the worst strategy you possibly could go with, but it was, it was a great time. I had an amazing time. Yeah. And I definitely need to go back to Waco cause that was the last time I've been there actually. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what was your experience of the Waco record? You like what motivated you to compete in the first place? Um, I had always wanted to do it. And I believe one of my sponsors at the time was was like offered to fly me out to it. And that sounded fantastic. I also had some friends who were doing a trip uh, in Waco at the time. And so I was able to stay with them and just kind of all the things fell into place. And it was on North Mountain. So it, you didn't need guides for the the day that we we did the rodeo. But yeah, I, I, it's been something I had always heard about. And, you know, people having these like legendary climbing days of multiple double digit boulders, which at the time was like super unheard of, you know, <laughs> I feel like we've come a long way in our sport where, you know, women doing multiple V12s in a day is like kind of old news almost, which is really cool. <laughs> but like, that was where you always heard of that happening was at the Waker Rock Radio. So it was kind of this like little legendary event that I was excited to, to go be a part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you said you didn't like go with much of a plan. Did you kind of like show up, be like, I'm going to be super strong and like rely on my like whatever, you know, finger strength or your power or whatever. Or was there any scoping out the problems, that sort of thing? I wasn't able to scope out at all because you don't really find out what mountain you're on until day of the competition, I want to say. Right. If that's still the same. And so I was hoping it was going to be on North because I had spent a couple days on North when I went to Waco in 2016 and I had some climbs that I wanted to go back to. And had some ideas of what to get on because I was, I was some of my strongest I've ever been like pure strength wise in 2017. So I was really excited about it, but it was like a 90 degree day, the day that we did it. And so all these climbs that I had set my eyes on were all these like super crimpy, what I thought was my style climbs. And my skin was like 
total gym baby skin and it was 90 degrees. And I remember I dropped my, my liquid chalk and it was lost for forever. And so I was, it was, a, it was quite an epic day. Like we started off trying these really, really hard climbs that I thought I was going to be able to do that. I feel like, you know, given maybe better conditions I could have done. And then it slowly went downhill. And so it got like halfway through the day and I hadn't done anything. <laughs> and that's when you started after being like, okay, I got to take a step back, you know, get some climbs under my belt and then start trying maybe some harder ones. So I think my strategy was to go hard right away, but I think it's better to maybe get some of those climbs under your belt and then, then try some of the more like unlikely boulders and then go back to, you know, the ones that you think, you know, for sure that you'll be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because you have to manage fatigue in a way. I feel like that might be pretty different from other outdoor climbing situations or even indoor climbing situations, which actually brings me to one question is obviously you have like extensive, extensive experience with competition world inside. What was it like to do an outdoor competition? And like, was that was like something like fatigue, like a bigger deal in that scenario? And how would you compare those two spaces? Definitely. I I feel like there's a lot of external factors when you're competing in general, like in, in a comp indoors, you, you never know what you're going to get. Whereas at this outdoor comp, it's actually the exact opposite. You know exactly what all the climbs are, but then you have all the things of like hiking to different boulders and, you know, carrying pads and pad placements, having enough pads, like all, all these different things that can make or break your success on a climb outside. Whereas in an indoor competition, it's a lot more on you and about like how you deal with what is given in front of you. And so it's a lot different when you can choose every climb that you get on yourself versus like you're just given a climb to get on. And so like that, that mental side of it was definitely different as well. My sports psych a long time ago mentioned that climbing is open sport. So like gymnastics, for example, is a closed sport where you always do the same routine over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then you get you know, judged on that and you compete the same way you practice, where you, you practice your routine and then you compete with that routine you practiced. Whereas climbing is an open sport, you you do all these things in practice and then you do totally different but similar-ish things in, in competition. Whereas I think those kind of outdoor competitions or speed climbing, for example, are both closed because it's climbs that you've been on before potentially or ones that you know and you mm-hmm. can kind of morph it a little bit more to your style just like a gymnast morphs their routine to fit their style. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, is there any like distinct distinction therefore in the like the mental side of competing outside yeah there totally is i think the way you approach a a closed competition versus an open competition like that is 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 very different for example like like, there's things that that definitely overlap between the two like you want to stay present focused and on what you're doing and you know not get ahead of yourself not be like oh if i send this one then i'll be able to send that other one i'll have time to go hike over to this one so you don't want to get ahead of yourself like that, but you also do want to plan. And then same thing goes in indoor competitions where you you want to stay focused on the climb that you're doing. You don't want to be thinking about the one that you're doing next while you're climbing the one that you're currently climbing because you might accidentally fall off the top if you're suddenly like, oh, what if I send this one? Then I could maybe do the next one too. <laughs> you know? So it, there's a lot of like the similarities in that way, but I think it's more about the way that you are mentally prepared. Whereas, because if it's, if it's say you're repeating boulders for like the Wigo Rock Radio, a lot of people go out and repeat climbs and remember everything that like all their beta and all these things. And so it's a lot more about execution versus like staying flexible and problem solving. Mm, Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any like specific memories from your competition in 2017? Oh, man. The, The one that really sticks out in my mind is there was a climb that a bunch of people did. And I went to it and I was like, man, this seems impossible. How did everybody do this? But what I didn't realize is that the starting hold had broken. And so everyone was starting to move in. 
And so I was trying to start on this like broken finish or start hold. And I was like, this is, this does not go. I think it was fern roof. It's like a V8. And it usually started on this like jug that I think the whole flake had broken off or something. And so I was trying it for quite a while, just not even able to get off the ground. And then as soon as somebody came by and they're like, oh, we started on the hold, like one over. I was like, oh, that makes way more sense. And like did it first try. So I wasted a ton of energy trying to do this, the beginning of this climb that was like not going to go. So yeah, that's kind of like the other interesting aspect of like a outdoor competition versus an indoor competition. Like the rules are a little bit different and a little bit maybe more flexible because like in a world cup, for example, there's a four point start that you have to do. (laughs) And then there's like outside, there's like sit starts, stand starts, you know, like, can you crouch start? Does your butt have to be on the ground? Like there's all sorts (laughs) of like, what ifs. Mm -hmm. And then how does interacting with other competitors work? Because um, you're friends with a lot of the people you're competing with in in the World Cups and Nationals and stuff like that. And obviously, probably at Waco, you knew pretty much everyone also that you're competing with. And there's a bunch of different levels at Waco. Did you kind of like hang out with the crew that was like you were competing with for the winning spot and like also trade beta and that sort of thing? We definitely talked about what climbs we were doing, but not necessarily like climb together. So like I think I had heard people had done fern roof. So then I went over there and then kind of vice versa. I told people what I had done and gave some beta on things, but you don't usually like stick around and like cheer for each other because everybody's on their own agenda where they're like, I need to get to this boulder and then I need to get to this boulder. I need to get to this boulder. So it's it's a little different in that you don't like stick around and watch like you do like at a world cup. As soon as you're done, you tend to like sit and cheer on the rest of your team because at that point your your job is done. <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do about how you climbed. And so you might as well watch it and cheer on your friends and how they do doesn't actually necessarily impact I mean, it doesn't impact your score, you know, like if I do four tops, somebody else doing four tops doesn't mean that I didn't do four tops anymore. So in that way, I think it's it's different where you don't like stay in rest, like stick around and cheer. But the, the camaraderie is, was still there for sure. Nice. One thing that I've been really fascinated with hearing you talk about very openly, especially on your podcast with Allison, is your fused spine and how that comes into play with your climbing decisions. And in particular, I think I've heard you say that outside can be pretty complicated with how to like, you know, figure out beta that works for you versus comps. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I guess for those who don't know, I have T2 through T12 fused in my spine. So it's 10 vertebrae. Uh, and that was from adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And we just caught mine really late. I didn't even wear a brace. We like basically went straight into surgery. So it does impact the way I move a lot. Like I, your T spine is responsible for most of the twisting that you're able to do like twisting and side bending especially so like for example i can climb you know v12 13 but i like putting on a seatbelt is really hard because <laughs> i can't like reach behind me in that way so it's just it's really funny the things that it affects or like if somebody puts toilet paper on like the back of a toilet i it's like almost impossible for me to grab so it's like it affects me in like really funny ways and then that means that the moves that it affects me on is also sometimes unpredictable but i think because of the 3d nature of outdoor bouldering you end up getting into a lot weirder positions and there's a lot less options a lot of times. So like if you're on a roof, for example, sometimes getting out of a roof is really hard because I can't like bend and twist my spine in the same way. Same with like really high heel hooks. It's a lot of times if you do a high heel hook, you you kind of bend your back to be able to weight the heel hook the right way. And mm. so I've like injured myself on heel hooks a bunch of times because I think I, I weight them wrong. And I, yeah, I think that's a morphology thing with this with scoliosis. There's a couple other ones, just like hard gas stone moves are, are really challenging because same thing. Mm. You usually to get your to get your weight into a hold, you usually like kind of throw your hips and, and back over to the side to, to kind of pull into the hold directionally. And I can't do that side bend. And so I, I usually end up like super locked in and sometimes can't move. 
So I tend to find the climbs though that suit me better outside because there are ones that suit me really well, but then there are ones that don't. But what's nice about climbing outside versus in a gym is that you you have that flexibility of being able to be like, okay, I like this boulder. I'm going to keep trying it. Or, okay, I don't like this boulder. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Whereas in a competition indoors, that's not always the, the case. Right. Yeah, that's okay. So interesting because my perception has always been that there are less options indoors. And you just said like you feel like there's more for you, which is really interesting. It depends on the boulder, I guess, because sometimes there's like tons of feet options and you know you can step on anything. Whereas sometimes it's like a pretty blank, like limestone face or something with just smooth rock and then tiny little, you know, feet. So I I think it kind of depends. Most climbers I know don't have a few spine, right? But I do know like people like me who are on the quite short side, the idea of like having to like pursue your own beta very doggedly and like, you know, people will be like, there's actually one beta here. You have to do it this way. And I'm like, nah, like actually guys, like seriously, (laughs) I'm too short for that. And so have you like built up kind of strategies for finding your own beta? Like, are there certain things like tricks that you know tend to work for you to get around things? Yeah, one one of the things is that when I, I when I watch other people, I really try and not think of that as being the only way to do something. Yeah, similar to like if you're too short to do a move, if you see somebody just do a huge span and then you're like, well, I can't do that, then you're never going to try something else. And so it's kind of approaching things with that idea of like, okay, there's multiple ways to do this. Which way is the right the right way for me instead of which way is the right way? And especially like indoor climbing, that's that's been really helpful, uh, especially because so many girls have really like flexible and strong backs that if I watch a lot of like the people I compete against do a move sometimes, I'm like, oh, no way can I do that. And then I try it and I find something else in a different way to do it. And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. That's that's fine. I can do it this way. And I've had enough of those situations where I've realized that I just need to like get out of my own head and, and realize that there are multiple solutions to each problem. Sometimes that's not the case. Like there it's, you know. But at least a large percentage of the time, there is some way that's possible. And so part of it has been accepting that there are those some few times that it is impossible Mm -hmm. and really being able to recognize them, but still allowing myself to be creative and try and come up with those creative solutions. And I think that that creativity mindset has really helped me be more excited about finding beta that works for me instead of being like, this is a chore. This is something that only I have to do because not many people have few spines. And it just makes it a lot more fun and exciting instead of just like kind of demoralizing. Yeah, I really like that because I definitely have personally gone through periods of my climbing where I'm like, well, like it's not it's not easy for me to see how I can do this as a shorter person. And therefore, like I discount it like a climb or a move really fast. Mm -hmm. And like then it becomes like a, a crutch or an excuse. So like this idea of like being creative as much as possible, but also creating space for like sometimes it just won't work. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes if you look at it and there's just no options, then like all you can do is kind of try hard. And then if that doesn't work, then you can walk away from it, you know, and being okay with walking away from it is also something that has been quite helpful as I've been facing this a lot. Yeah. Very cool. So what is one piece of advice that you would give any Waco competitor this year? Oh, man, I would say definitely come up with a game plan and then also back up things like that. So I'd have like, you know, however many climbs you're supposed to do, if it's six or seven or five or whatever, like come up with your top five that you like your most ideal situation and then have that be plan A and then come up with like a plan B and a plan C, I think. Ooh, plan C too. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I really, that's what I do in, in like lead competitions. Say I, I look at a climb and I don't know what the beta is going to be. And 
sometimes if you don't know what the beta is, you get there and you completely stall out and then you have no idea what to do. But if you go in with three options, like you have plan A, plan B, and plan C, then you can really quickly kind of make that decision of, okay, I'm going to do A. Oh, nope, no, I'm not. I'm going to do B. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, it just makes you more decisive, waste less energy and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that just made me think of a, a, another question I want to ask you, kind of moving more into the, the community conversations you've been bringing up on kind of your platforms and stuff. Well, yeah. One of the things I really love about Circle Up, your podcast with Allison, is how transparent you guys are making like the life of a pro climber, which I think is really nice and like making it less like, oh, these people over here, right? Doing these crazy things. But for example, one of the things that you've recently talked about is your fear of falling and fear of the unknown um, and how that mm -hmm. can significantly impact your on-siding outside. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that was definitely talking. Well, it's honestly both lead and bouldering. I think especially having a fused spine like highball bouldering just feels really unnecessarily dangerous <laughs> sometimes, like especially if it's, you know, a sketchy top out that you could you know, if the average person could get injured falling off of it, like my spine doesn't compress. And so if I were to fall from pretty high up, there's an even higher likelihood that I would break my back, which I, I obviously don't want to do. And like, for me, at least like the possibility of that is sometimes not worth risking it. But there's obviously a lot of things that you can do, or especially not with risking an onsite, you know, and it's just kind of weighing like what your priorities are there and being okay with them being maybe different from other people's like, mm. so for me outside, for me to get the most enjoyment, which is why I climb outside for like the main reason I climb outside is to, to gain enjoyment and like self-fulfillment, right? Mm. And so I've found that I have the most fun and get the most fulfillment if I like am safe about it. Like maybe I try something on a top rope first or on lead instead of going for an on-site burn where I know I'm going to get really scared and not want to fall. I'll, you know, kind of dog draw it, like go from draw to draw on whatever it is. And then know all the holds, know all the clipping positions maybe even take some of the falls and be like, okay, this is fine. I'll be safe even if I fall from here. Mm -hmm. And like that method has just like massively increased my enjoyment outside. And then therefore also my performance, even though it's maybe not like first go performances. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Do you think that, I mean, I guess this is an assumption a little bit, like because you are able to read routes when you're competing, right? To some extent, right? Even like with lead climbing, you don't necessarily know exactly what that hold's going to feel like, but you can see it, right? From the ground. Totally, yeah. Do you think that plays into that experience at all? I think definitely like, outside, you obviously can't do quite the same thing of, you can look at a route in a competition with binoculars. And at least like I have a pretty large knowledge of holds in my, in my brain just because of having touched so many climbing holds in my life, you know? And so typically, even, even if I haven't climbed that route, I recognize the holds and have at least a pretty solid idea of what they're going to be and which hold's going to be the best one to clip off of and stuff like that. And then, yeah, outside, I mean, that's a lot harder unless you really scrutinize a video that's really well done. You're not going to know what those holds are until you're up there. Mm -hmm. And so that, that definitely does play in that kind of fear factor and and also I've, yeah I've just always been afraid of lead climbing it's it's getting better like the more I do it the less scared I get for sure mm -hmm. but then even if I like take a big break and then come back to it it's always there like mm -hmm. I, I think it's just something I'm always going to have to deal with and be okay with and just work through it you know yeah totally and I think that's so many climbers right like because lead climb is actually scary because the number of people like not that this happens constantly but like I definitely know of people who have gotten hurt when lead climbing so mm -hmm. you know it's like not negligible the actual safety concerns <laughs> right yeah so sure. 
And like, I think realizing what's like a real safety concern versus like just your brain getting in your way is also really helpful. So for me, like high balls outside, I think there is like a real safety concern, but there, but you can, you can take it down to a certain point by being confident in the climb and like knowing where to go and not being lost, stuff like that. And you can kind of reduce that risk. And then same with lead climbing. It's like, am I in a dangerous position? Is my leg behind the rope? Is it vertical? Am I wearing a helmet? All these, all these factors. And you can like kind of reduce those risks. And so kind of evaluating whether it's actually something that's going to endanger you or if it's just like your brain getting in your own way. And that's when I like decide when to push it or not. Yeah. And I definitely think what I appreciated especially was that I think kind of a lot of the the mental game talk that I see in the climbing community focuses on like fear of failure and fear of falling specifically. But I know that like at least for me, a bunch of my friends, fear of the unknown is a huge component of the fear of falling experience. Like that's mm-hmm. what it feels like Definitely. more of like, I don't know what's next. It's not like I'm focusing on the falling part. I just don't know what's next. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, it was really nice to hear you call that out. So kind of as we're talking about that part of it, I want to like, one thing that I've been, I recently talked to Hazel Finley about mm-hmm. her kind of theories on like, there are gateways to performance, to successful performances, and then there's barriers. What do you think are some of your gateways and barriers? Ooh, that's a hard question. It's going to take me a second. <laughs> All good. <laughs> so like gateways to success, like what has kind of gotten me to where I am? Mm-hmm. I would say one of my biggest ones is that I'm genuinely quite nice to myself in my training. Like I love the feeling of being like totally beat down and tired. And I think why I love that feeling so much is just because like, I'm not like mad at myself when I'm like not doing something. I'm like, wow, I'm so tired that I can't do this anymore. Like, that's pretty cool. Like I've really worked myself. It's just like a total, it's like a slight switch in your mindset. So instead of being like, man, I'm tired. I'm so mad. I can't do this. It's like, oh man, I like worked so hard that I'm this tired that I can't do this anymore. Like, that's so interesting and cool that I like did that. And, And so I think that's actually made me like really, really enjoy training and trying hard because what I, what I see a lot in climbing culture is kind of this celebration of the masochism, I guess. And so people see people just like sitting there suffering, training in the gym, kind of hating themselves a little bit or hating the boulder and anything. And I think that can lead to some success, but as far as longevity in the sport and also just like mental health, I think having a different mindset of trying hard and being okay with that sometimes not working out is really, really helpful and has been, I mean, the thing that's gotten me as far as I can, especially given the challenges I faced with my back. I think it's really been helpful to not like blame myself for those things, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And then for barriers, I mean, I guess my one, my one kryptonite to that is that when something feels like I can't do it because of my back, it just feels completely out of my control. Whereas if it's a big, I mean, say it's a crimp, I can't hold on to It's like a small hold that's exciting to me because I'm like, okay, I can hang board more. I can do more pull-ups. I can do all these things to try and make that hold more grabbable. But when it's like a move that I can't do because of my back or, or if it even feels like it's a move I can't do because of my back, I just get kind of lost and don't know what to work on to make it more achievable. Mm-hmm. And like, I really like that feeling of, you know, having something to work on. And it's exci- that's exciting to me, like I said, but this idea of like when I just have this thing that I just can't get any better at, that's just really demoralizing. And that's when I'm like really hard on myself. And so recognizing that honestly was the first step, but that's been one of my bigger barriers for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely when I feel like most people's barriers are like a certain narrative that they have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. 
One thing that you and Allison were talking about, I mean, you guys talk about like performance pressure, expectations, body image, nutrition, comparing yourself to other people. One thing, I mean, that is definitely like an ongoing topic in the climbing community is definitely the sense of body image element and the whole kind of like how eating gets involved in that. I heard you guys talking about, you know, clothing, and I think you were using the words ripped and buff to talk about like what like you know when people like describe women's bodies like that are really strong really a strong athletic body yeah, yeah. they use buff or ripped or sometimes jacked and then like ju- or just like strong right yeah okay this is just like a freaking sidebar but like for some reason i personally can't handle like it feels like there's different la- layers to those things but buff seems to be mm-hmm. the most icky one <laughs> <laughs> what do you, like how are you thinking about that conversation like I think I love the message like you know strong is beautiful you should just be happy with what your body looks like it is bringing you to amazing places like that sort of thing but like yeah I guess yeah that, I don't even know if there's a question there that's, well that's interesting I, I haven't really thought about like the narrative that we use to even talk about our own bodies as far as like being muscular or being strong but I, I think it's a good point like just different words like trigger you in different ways and I can see how like yeah like buff or ripped or jacks just maybe associates muscular with being more manly or something which is you know part of the narrative that we're trying to change like women can be strong and can be buff (laughs) like um and so maybe that's maybe that's kind of just something to think about i guess when we're when we're talking about it like what's a what's a word that means like you're a strong woman (laughs) not necessarily just like comparing you to jacked gym bros (laughs) or something (laughs) but yeah I, i see i see what you mean but yeah, I, I don't know what question we just asked or answered, but I totally see it. <laughs> yeah, just highlighting. But I guess along those lines, what are you like excited to continue talking about or like a subject that you think the climbing community has still a lot more work to be talking about? Ooh, we have been trying to like really, like, I feel like similar to what I was just talking about, like press this idea of, you know, being nice to yourself. I think especially as the sport's growing and as younger and younger kids are getting into it and like we're getting more media attention. There's just so many ways that that can yeah, reflect on your like your self-image and things like that. And so I feel like I, I'm trying to be that podcast that I wish I had when I was like 11 years old and only was surrounded by a bunch of men in the gym, you know? And so that, that, those are the things that I'm really excited to talk about is stuff that I wish I had somebody telling me as a, as a child, I guess, especially when growing up in the climbing community. Yeah, definitely. So, and one thing you just said about climbing, getting a lot of attention from the outside world. What's it Mm -hmm. been like to get a lot of attention from outside the climbing world, like you specifically as an athlete, given your Olympian status? Not many climbers have that experience. Like I feel like Tommy and Alex and that's it, right? Like most people don't see climbers as uh, specific climbers from the outside world. So what has that been like? Has it been overwhelming? Has it been weird? Have people said silly things like ascending the wall <laughs> like, like, like oh yeah I mean, there's so much of that like or you know asking if I want to climb Everest I'm like there's literally no way I'm never gonna climb Everest like I mean I guess never say never but like that's not on my list of things to do at least um like that's so different from, from like, the little boulders that I climb and so I that that part's been funny I would say it's interesting to watch people who don't know climbing you know film climbing because everybody ends up coming up with like the same ideas which is always funny to me like like, okay, like we need a photo of you putting your shoe on and then we need a close up of you chalking up and we need you to clap. And like, you know, can you blow on your hand really quick? And can you, so, so that was just always just entertaining to me. But as far as just like representing the sport is important to me. And cause I, I think it's a fantastic sport that's lifelong and it's important to me that people have access to sport in general. 
And a lot of sports, you end up stopping after college at the latest for the majority of individuals, right? There's a few sports that tend to be lifelong, like surfing is usually a lifelong sport. Climbing is a lifelong sport. Gymnastics, for example, is not a lifelong sport. It's, I think, a fantastic sport to get into. But then having something that you can do all, like your entire life that lets you stay active, I think is really special and allows you to find you know, meaning, purpose, community, all these things. And that's something that I want a lot of people to have more access to. And so that was a lot of the times the message that I was trying to, to get across and I'm still trying to get across that, you know, finding something like that is important, whether it's climbing, surfing, something that gets you outside, something that gives you community. And yeah, and that's something that I'm definitely passionate about is eventually hoping, hoping to try and make it more and more accessible. And so that's like, I'm on the board of USA Climbing and on the athlete commission and of various other commissions. Um, and so that's something that I've, has always been the background passion to like that work that I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you like, what's the vision of what are you doing as 80 year old Kyra? Uh, <laughs> climbing wise. <laughs> That's a great question. Hopefully still climbing, you know, if my fingers aren't too arthritic by that time, but I've always, I've always wanted to go to vet school. That's still kind of my plan as like post post pro climbing, at least who knows it's, it sounds daunting, but, but that's still kind of my, my general plan. So, so maybe I'll be a vet slash climber slash who knows grandma. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Okay. And then, um, obviously also you have an expertise in training and you do a lot of training and it sounds like you have a really great training mindset and just kind of this curiosity and creativity, um, and like being really proud of yourself and that sort of thing. I feel like when I come across you on the internet, there's like, you have like kind of like little quick hits of like really cool training tips and stuff. But I'd love to take a step back and kind of like think more big picture. Like if you had to suggest three focus areas for someone trying to wade through all the training information out there, what would you suggest? Okay, I guess the first thing I would say is that most climbers I see in the gym talk more than they climb. So like, you know, they're sitting and they're talking to people uh, and they're not climbing as much. So like the main, like, and there's no problem with like, you know, having the social aspect. But I think just even if you were to set a timer of like four minutes after each time you get off the the wall so that you get back on the wall every four minutes, because uh, I think it's really easy to just have like 10, 20 minutes go by just from sitting and chatting. Like I, I do that all the time still. And then, but then that just makes me end up staying at the gym for like six hours <laughs> so that I get through everything. But not everybody has that kind of time, I know. So I think something like that is just like having a slightly more focused session is honestly more important than any other training that you're going to do. So yeah, setting a timer to get back on the wall, something like that, just so that you, you don't lose track of time and then have to leave. Or for me, I get hungry and I need to <laughs> need to leave and eat. So that's, that would be my first tip. Second tip, depending on if you're like psyched on leader bouldering, I, this goes for both, is get on things that are too hard for you. More often than not, I see people just like have to send things in the gym and, and don't try the ones that are like maybe a step up from that. And then when you do that, the third thing I would say is cheat because that's how you get better. <laughs> like, you know, if you are trying a V9 at the gym and you can't do any move, that's helpful, but you can then add a foot so that you can like get closer to doing a move and then you could take that foot away or have somebody give you a power spot. And then you learn these movements that are too hard for you. And then you can slowly take away those cheats and make it so it's possible. And so those are like three, I guess, things that I see are common mistakes, I guess, in the gym, like not trying something that's hard enough, not helping yourself try something that's, you know, maybe too hard for you. So like, that's a cheating idea. And I think that's just a fun way to say it because I totally, I cheat on boulders all the time. 
all the time and not in competitions, obviously, or anything like that. But while I'm practicing, I'll add a foot, I'll add a hand, I'll have somebody push me, I'll jump off the ground, (laughs) all sorts of stuff. And then, yeah, just having a little bit more focus. Okay. I love that so much. I have a follow-up question though. So you're, you're talking like not even able to do one move on the boulder is still like worthwhile, like figuring it out, like trying to do approximate movement. We, we have a saying in our training center and this, our coach, Josh Larson, he came up with this is if you can touch it, you can grab it. And if you can grab it, you can hold it. And so like, I think finding those small wins in your training is so important. And this is like kind of going back to what I was saying about being nice to yourself. It's like, instead of being like, oh man, I, I'll never be able to do this move. You can be like, okay, I'm going to try and touch this hold. And like, that's the win you're looking for. It's not even like you're trying to send the boulder. It's not even you're trying to do the move. You're trying to touch the hold, you know? Yeah. And as soon as you break it down to that, and then as soon as you touch it, you're like, oh man, maybe I can grab it. <laughs> and then, then you kind of like hold the position and you can figure out, okay, I can, I can hold it. So that means if I can grab it, I can hold it. <laughs> and You know, it just goes on from there. And so I think it kind of goes on to that, like optimistic view and stuff. So. Nice. I really like that way of looking at things. Yeah, definitely. I think that's so awesome. Okay. And then how, you know, I'm sure that this has evolved over time, but how do you break down your time in terms of movement work, strength work, and more mental focus type things? Yeah, I'll start with mental just because it's probably the easiest. I, I work with a sports psych. I have ever since before qualifying for my first Olympics. And that was really, really instrumental in just like a lot of it is stuff that you know, like you, you know it in the back of your head, like that's what you should be doing. But then as soon as somebody tells you it, it's so obvious, like back to the thing I was saying earlier, like the present focus, it's so obvious that you should just be focused on what you're doing, right? Like that's such an obvious thing. But as soon as she told me like, oh, you need to be more present focused while you're competing, it was really easy to, to apply it to my, to my competitions. Like even just sending something in a gym, if you are going for the last move and you're already thinking about like, oh, I'm going to send this boulder, you might slip and like fall off matching the finish or something like that so just making sure you're focused on what you're doing and not being far ahead is was like one of those obvious things that just talking to a sports psych really helped with and i try and like be really up up front with all of that information that i learned from my sports psych just because like i said i know not everybody has access to that and so just talking about it and giving access hopefully to more people like free on the internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, i i really enjoy from actual like training standpoint i spend a lot of time I would say at least half of my session, if not more, is usually on like getting stronger, gaining more endurance, gaining finger strength, gaining power. And then I would say the other, maybe one third of the time, I would say probably two thirds and then one third is focused on actual movement, like technique and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, I think that is really important to highlight because a a lot of people really, especially when they're just getting into training, they're like, oh, I just need to like hang X amount of weight on the hang board or whatever. Um, but how much you can gain from like continually working on like weaknesses on technique and like that sort of thing. That's really cool. Yeah. And what's nice is that you can, like, um, I was talking to a girl I coach recently about how on the days that you're feeling tired, but you like still feel like you can climb, you can make those sessions a lot more useful by doing that, those kind of skills practices. Cause you can still gain just as much knowledge and just as much um, like movement practice when you're tired as you can when you're fresh, whereas you can't make those same gains on like the fingerboard or hangboarding or um, campus boarding when you're that tired. So it's it's nice to have those two different aspects where you can take advantage of those times that you're tired and and get a lot out of it. And then how where does like mobility fit into that equation for you? Is that like just rest day type of thing or I'm pretty bad with mobility. Honestly, I was really good about it before the Olympics because I thought that maybe 
part of the things that was holding me back with my back was maybe, you know, not enough hip mobility. I got to being able to do the splits and I noticed no difference in like <laughs> these, these backy moves. So I think I maybe like lost a little bit of my like stretching psych. But I, I, I think it's important if, if especially if it's something that you is not a strength. Like, so for me, it's like, it's not a weakness. And so if, if it's your weakness, I think definitely, you know, practicing mobility and stuff is important. Uh, but I've been doing a lot more um, like kind of off the wall cardio stuff. I've been doing boxing as cross training. And I've actually found... I was a big non-believer in cardio, to be honest, and I am a little annoyed at myself for how much I've found that it has been helping <laughs> because I, one, I don't like it that much still, but uh, like, especially in lead climbing, I can just think so much more clearly while tired than mm -hmm. I could before. So it used to be that I would get really tired and then suddenly make a stupid decision and then fall off. So like, but now it's like, as soon as I'm tired, I'm, I'm still really cognizant and like able to focus on what decisions I need to make to stay on the wall. And so it's not necessarily that my endurance improved from doing cardio, like my, my climbing endurance improved. It's more that my mental stamina while physically stressed improved. <laughs> Whoa, that's so cool. And boxing. Yeah. It's, it's more fun <laughs> than, than like running, running. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But, and so you started to address this a little earlier, but so it seems like at least in the last couple of years and for most of your climbing career, competitions have been your main focus and like as opposed to climbing outside or like goals outside. Since climbing outside isn't your main focus most of the time, when you do climb outside, what are you like going for? Like, what are you, is it just to have fun? Like what kind of where are you, or do you have like mini goals? Do you go big when you do get to go outside? What, what is, what are your thoughts on that? I think I kind of like alluded to this earlier, but for me outside is, is where I like want to just enjoy climbing as much as possible. And so I feel like I have no problem walking away from a climb that I don't like outside. Like I don't have that need to do it if I don't like it. And so if the climb that I like happens to also be like a really hard grade, then that's awesome. Like I'll try and do it and I'll put everything into it. Mm -hmm. But then same thing, even if it's like an easy climb that I really like and maybe is even just super hard for me, like that'll, I'll put the same amount of effort into that as I would something that is of like a harder grade and, or, you know, so that would get like more media attention, for example. But for me, like I said, it's, it's more about if I like the climb just because I want to have fun when I'm outside. And I found that that's the way that I enjoy it the most mm -hmm. <laughs> and like have the best time, which is what's important to me. Mm -hmm. I know that like as a competition climber, it's like kind of your job to be well-rounded, <laughs> but do you have <laughs> like things you gravitate towards? Oh yeah. Well, so I'll say the thing that I'm terrible at <laughs> first, which is heel hooks. I'm really, really, really bad at heel hooks. I, I like partially tore my hamstring when I was like 14 climbing in the gym and just avoided heel hooks like the plague after that. And I'm so mad at myself <laughs> because of it, because like, I'm still ruining the day that I did that. <laughs> like swore off of heel hooks, but my style is definitely board climbing, like straightforward, hard, big moves on like goodish crimps is definitely like what my favorite type and style of climbing is usually towing into like anything that involves like keeping tension on a toe or jumping off a toe or being extended and like I that's all the stuff that I like the most and it's what I like love climbing the most as well okay so actually kind of related to that because maybe that is the answer and I think maybe this is like a googling problem but I feel like <laughs> I feel like okay so sometimes climbers float and I what is what is that is that just like good footwork the, like the floaty look like when they like kind of float between moves yeah is that okay. biceps like what is that <laughs> that is a great question because somebody actually was just pointing this out to me on the board like we were climbing on the board the other day 
I think it's a lot of core tension. So like even if your foot's not on the wall, like I feel like that floatiness comes from like keeping your body kind of tight into the wall. Mm. And so I think it's a combo of finger strength and core tension would be my guess. Because if you're able to like kind of just destroy a hold with the hand that you're holding on with, and then your body kind of floats with all that core tension to the next crimp that you're going to destroy with it, like you don't get that, that like swing out wild movement that like you sometimes see people who are maybe new to climbing on like a gym climb. So, so I think that that would be my guess of where that comes from, but it's probably like just general body strength and, and like climbing movement knowledge. Yeah. Cause I was just like sitting there, like trying to find information on this, whether like people have like tried to accomplish this at all. Cause I see it all the time and I don't, and for a while I was like, is it just people climbing well below their grade limit? And that's what it is. But I do think it is like, even when you're trying really hard, some people float. So I totally, I like that. that. That's an interesting, an interesting perspective. I, I've totally, I totally know exactly what you're talking about, but haven't really thought before of like what it is that makes people floaty. Mm-hmm. And people definitely have floatier styles than others as well. Hmm. Yeah. Which actually leads me into my other question. I'm sure you like have experienced flow before with climbing. Um, but apparently there's an also like a, like an alternative or like kind of a coexisting concept called clutch, which is like trying really hard. Hmm. So it's like, it's what? so cause flow, oh, like the clutch. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> so like, do you feel like, your ideal state is flow or is it trying really, really hard? No, that's actually, that's a really great question because I think there are climbers who tend to be flow climbers and there are climbers who definitely tend to be clutch climbers. I would say Nathaniel, like Nathaniel Coleman, he to me is a flow climber. He can just like get into that flow state and just, you know, win silver medal at the Olympics. It's, it's insane to watch, honestly. I definitely am far more of a clutch person. Uh, like I feel like my theory when I was like young and I, I don't know there's probably some flaws in this as I was growing up and competing was that I just had to be way too strong so that I could mess up as much as I needed to <laughs> um and so I feel like that maybe comes from that like being more of a clutch person than a flow person I also like am not that like I'm not that chill I feel like I'm pretty like high energy and so I think the flow state maybe comes a little bit more with being like that kind of like chiller personality versus like higher energy, higher maintenance type person or something. Well, yeah. So when you're like competing and you kind of have lots of energy, do you have to like calm yourself down or do you actively psych yourself up more? This was actually another thing that I talked to my sports like about forever ago. This was on like the first things we talked about. And it's kind of this idea of like neurological engagement. And like me, I kind of like base level, even just me like cleaning my house during the day is like a seven out of 10. Like I'm just like going, 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 like a lot of thoughts are happening. I'm, you know, kind of hyperactive. Whereas like some people are much more of like a three on like a base day. Right. And that's just like, they're going about, they're doing their thing. They're like cooking their eggs and they're, that's the only thing they're doing. So I being aware that I'm like typically a seven, like if I go to a lead climbing competition, for example, if I'm at a seven, I'm going to be like shaking myself off the wall. (laughs) Whereas like in a bouldering competition, sometimes you need that like clutch feeling and you kind of need to be at a seven. Mm. And so, and maybe even a nine, if it's like a really savage, you know, overhanging, thuggy boulder and so kind of evaluating which level you need to be at and also knowing what your like typical base level is was really helpful as far as like what do I need to do to get to the level I need to be at so for example before a lead competition I never drink coffee because coffee is one of those things that can increase that level like really like artificially increases your level from like a seven to a nine mm-hmm. I don't want to be at a nine while I'm lead climbing I want to be at a five and so I tend to listen to like opera music to make me more chill oh. and then yeah, ex- exactly. And then um, 
But for like speed climbing, for example, at the Olympics in uh, 2021, like you kind of want to be at a nine. And so you would listen to more like hype music or like drink caffeine or like eat some shot blocks or some, something like that just mm. to like raise that level. And but yeah, that's like different from person to person. And so kind of evaluating what your level is and what you need. Like if you're shaking yourself off your your bouldering project, like you probably need to chill, chill a little bit. Whereas if you fell because you you weren't trying hard enough or like you didn't have that like clutch feeling, that's maybe when you need to be like, okay, I need to hype myself up a bit and just kind of be aware of it. Yeah. You, I mean, okay. So how would you grade your, like how in tune with your body you are? I, I think that's something that I'm definitely good at. I think that's also how I've managed to mostly avoid injuries mm. has been being pretty aware of what's something that's going to injure me and what's something that's just hard you know, and stuff like that. Or when am I tired and should stop versus when am I tired and should push through? Mm -hmm. And I think that comes a lot from just like, yeah, being pretty aware of your body. And also, I think also being nice to yourself. That's, that's one of those situations where it's like being able to tell when I'm about to get injured versus when I'm just, you know, tired and need to try harder is something that can kind of meld to look like the same thing if you're not being nice to yourself. Yeah, totally. And then, okay, last kind of training category question. What do you think is like one of the biggest takeaways from your working with your sports psychologist that you think most climbers could benefit from? Ooh, I've given a couple of my good ones already throughout this. Let me think. Oh, one, one for competition specifically was, that was quite helpful was to expect turbulence. And like that idea came from like, if you're afraid of flying and you get on the plane and you're like, okay, I really, I really hope there's no turbulence. This is going to suck if there's turbulence, but I, like maybe there just won't be in this flight will be fine, you know? And then if there is turbulence, you're so disappointed and you're so shocked and you're so mad about it. And like, it's way awful. Right. Whereas if you go in and you expect it to be turbulent and then you happen to have smooth sailing, like skies, like that's great. But if there is turbulence, okay, it's fine. You expected it. And so kind of just like, it's being like prepared for anything to happen because I used to go into competitions being like, okay, man, I really hope that there's not going to be any boulders that aren't my style or are bad for my back. Mm -hmm. And that's my only thing I can do. I can only hope that they're not going to be there. Right. I have no control over whether they are or whether they aren't. But then I would be so sad if I turned around and saw a boulder that was bad for my back. And that so much so that it was like so disappointing that I like couldn't get myself to try hard on them. So instead, going into these competitions and being like, okay, there might be climbs that are hard for me. There might be climbs that are great for me. Like it could be anything like I don't know, but it's just kind of this more neutral status instead of trying to be like, I mean, it sounds bad to say like, don't be overly optimistic, but it's mostly like going in neutral so that you aren't surprised in either direction. Mm. And that was helpful because I think same thing, like if you go to a boulder and you're like, I'm going to flash this thing. It's totally my style. It's going to be awesome. If you go to it and then it's just like totally not your style, not what you expected. And it's not awesome. You're so much more sad than if you like. So it's just like moderating your expectations while still having really big goals. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that way of saying it. Uh, expect turbulence. Love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that, one, that one's been helpful. Okay. So looking forward, you, there is one more spot for qualifying for the Olympics. Is that correct? Yes, there is. Okay. Can you tell for the women, can you tell me a little bit about that process? Like, are there, is there just like one more competition that like, like kind of houses that spot? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So there's the, the final way to qualify is through the OQS, the Olympic qualifying series. Um, and there's going to be two competitions, one in Shanghai and one in Budapest, and they're in May and June. And you get points for competing at both of those. So you have to go to both. And then the top 10 people will qualify for the Olympics from that event. And this is a lot different from the 2019 qualification for Tokyo because they really wanted people to 
follow along with the qualification series and and keep people more involved in the Olympic process. It wasn't just the Olympics. It was also the qualifying for the Olympics. And mm-hmm. so those events are actually a multi-sport event with, I think, four sports represented. So it should be really cool to be a part of. There'll probably be like an athlete village. It'll be like kind of a mini Olympic-ish event. So I'm really excited to, to go to that. But yeah, the the bummer is that as a US team, like we're really strong, like we have a really strong team. And so with only having two spots available, like that just means that some really strong people aren't going to be able to make the team. And so it's going to be hard. And there's four of us who are competing for that one spot. It's Brooke Rabatou, Kylie Cullen, Annie Sanders, and myself. And I think, you know, like we all are going into it knowing that that's, that that sucks, that only one of us can make it and that like, we're all going to give it our all. And so I think there's a lot of mutual understanding and just that like everybody wants it, not everybody can get it. And like, we're, we're all friends. And so it makes it both harder and easier to cope with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Do you have any like learnings from the last Olympics or anything like that that's like informing your strategy this go around? Partially, it's like it's a little different this time, just having like such a strong U.S. team. Mm-hmm. I think Brooke talked about it in her podcast with the Nugget that, you know, like we didn't know if anybody was going to qualify in 2019. And like this time, like we really expected that we were going to fill our entire quota, which is just a di- totally different way of approaching the qualification series. And so last time it was like this huge goal that I like was pretty sure I could accomplish, but like had no 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 clue if it was even possible whereas this time like knowing the process a little bit more it's definitely definitely different because but also only having one spot left is still like really stressful so i don't quite know what my my point there is but i think i'm just going in knowing exactly like who i'm competing against and then what level i need to be at in order to have a chance at that spot um and i think that's what's really exciting to me like you know like brooke, brooke is a world cup champion like she she's obviously incredible and like you know, that's the level that I have to be at in order to potentially get this spot. And so that's exciting to me because like, I think we're all pushing each other. Like Annie's made multiple World Cup finals. Kylie had made every semifinal for like every World Cup that she had ever been to for a while there. So obviously everyone's at a really, really high level. And I think I'm using that as like an excitement and motivation to train instead of like it being disheartening, like that my chances are lower or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I I love talking to folks who are involved in the comp scene because and I don't know if this is just a front maybe but you guys all seem genuinely to be very kind and friendly to each other which I just love so much <laughs> yeah I think we, we've all like finally accepted that we're all like very competitive obviously and that we all want to win and that there's like this mutual understanding there that like everybody wants it not everybody can can have it at the same time you know So Kyra, leave us with a story of an epic you've had in the past, either some type of epic competition and where everything went wrong or an outdoor day or something like that. I uh, was actually just like telling this story to somebody at Mountain Hardware. We had this day after climbing at the Chamonix World Cup where everybody wanted to go outside. And so we went to this like crag and it was supposed to be like a 20 minute hike, beautiful, close to Chamonix, but it was pre-Olympic qualification in 2019. And so I was really stressed about training. And so I was really excited to like go to the gym and train some more. Mm. Like I didn't get the competition competition result that I wanted. And so I was a little grumpy about everybody wanting to go outside this day because that's like not what I wanted to be doing. But they were like, okay, well, we'll have enough time where you can like go train afterwards. So you should just come do some easy climbs and then go train after. And I was like, great, yeah, that sounds good. I'll, I'll do that. Then this hike was huge. It was like two hours, like instead of being like 30 minutes. And then um, we get up there and it's like the scariest routes I've ever done. I like cried on a 12A and was like, never mind, this is not good for me today. Not what I want to be doing. So then I just like sat there and watched some animals and just got some sunlight, like tried to soak in the beautiful view and like make the most out of it. Uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to go back down to the car with Cece, who was also on the team. Uh, and we're going to like 
hangboard a little bit over there, get some training in so that like the day is successful. And we got completely lost on the way down, like so, so, so lost, completely lost the tra- trail <laughs> and ended up 10 kilometers down the road from where we were supposed to be. Oh, no. <laughs> like it was so bad. And literally everybody left like an hour and a half after us and beat us to the car because we literally weren't even on the road yet. And neither of us had service. Our phones were going to die. Like I thought we were going to be lost in like the Chamonix Alpine for, <laughs> for like the entire night. So they got to the car and they're like, where are you guys? And finally, I was able to like send a like a screenshot of where we were. And it was like, yeah, they were like a 20 minute drive away. And we're like, how the heck did we do this? (laughs) And then finally, we were like, went to this restaurant afterwards and starving and mad that I didn't get my training in and all this, whatever. And I was like, I'm going to get some dessert, damn it. Like I want tiramisu at this place. And we didn't even have time to do that because we had to drive to Italy. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to at least get a dessert to like as my comfort for today. And then we had to leave and start driving. And it was one of the scariest drives ever because it was like pouring rain and everybody was kind of grumpy. And anyway, that's the, the epic that comes to mind <laughs> for some reason recently when uh, when I've been asked that question. Nice. Yeah. This seems like just like everything compiles on itself and then it's everything's awful. Yeah. Cool. And we just bushwhacked our way down this, this hill oh, for like miles. <laughs> yeah. It was tough. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Kyra, for all your wisdom and thoughts today. I hope everyone's super psyched to continue following your competition career and good luck with the Olympic qualifiers. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. If you're psyched to apply Kyra's performance tips at the iconic Waco Rock Rodeo this year, it's not too late to sign up last minute. The rodeo is February 16th through the 18th, and you can sign up at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash Waco Rock Rodeo.